I'm ready when you are. You can feel the country's on a knife edge. It's only, what, 30 minutes late starting? Let's do this! <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. You're in retreat. We're not rioting yet. I don't like that question. You're just saying shit and you don't even know what you're talking about. But Spider-Gate sounds way cooler than Manta Rays, doesn't it? And I was like, well, here's my two cents. You, you, you need a lot of stuff. That's how we should describe the podcast. If they ever went around recruiting one more person, then we'd have double the number of people listening. Well then. Let's start the show. Well, hello, Brad fans. We are back. What's up, Brad? Well, it's all up at the moment, but you know that's a medical matter. You want about that? How are you? How are you, good <laughs> sir? I'm doing great, doing good. Um, yeah, hello to the listeners. As always, thank you for joining us. Um, should we jump right into it, Brad? Let's not. Let's not waste any time. You and I have had a lovely pre-production chat where we we, we plan this so well, don't we? As the listeners can tell. So <laughs> let's let's not store anymore. Let's. Uh, and Tabby Bruce has entered the room, so he might be making an appearance in the class. All so right, let, podcast mascot. Let's go. All right. Well, let's do it then. Um, first off. You know, what we're known for, our favorite topic, we still don't have a, a, a teaser, a stinger. We got no lead up into it other than, there it is, there it is. That's right. It's it's Ebola time. Ooh. It's Ebola time. Uh, and this time, we're going we're gonna to save the update because the outbreak is ongoing, but we're going to save the update because there is other breaking Ebola news. And that is, we got them. We found it. We found Ebola inside of a bat we found, so this is is it patient one subject one what's it referred to in the film of of patient zero patient zero patient zero patient I was zero one away with, one away in rounding tech, you know i probably that right. <laughs> i don't know if technically we can call it patient zero because that's usually for an outbreak but this is different and i think we've talked about it before on the show but it's long been suspected, you know, where does Ebola come from? Where, what animal are people getting it from? How are people getting infected? And it's long been suspected that it was, it's bats. And now the government of Liberia, along with the Center for, listen to the name of this school. It's Center for Infection and Immunity at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health and Eco Health. Oh yeah, and, and the Eco Health Alliance announced the discovery of Ebola virus in a bat in Liberia. Sorry. I don't know why mailman is in there. Oh, right, that was so. exactly going to be my question. Are you sure <laughs> yeah. that's not a typo? I'm pretty sure it's not. Like, I got this direct from, like, the, the press release, basically. So, mailman school of public health, you know, postman Pat is their mascot. <laughs> but uh, the big news, yeah, that they found it in a bat. So, for the longest time, like I said, they had no idea where Ebola came from. Bats were suspected, but there had also been links to bushmeat, which, again, I'm sure we've talked about. 
but this is um, basically just meat that people are getting from the jungle. Um, so chimpanzees, gorillas, duikers, which I think is some kind of small deer-like creature. Duikers? Um, yeah. D-U-I-K-E-R-S. Duikers? 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 I'll, I'll take your word for it. I'll, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll ask my mailman when he turns up tomorrow. He's obviously a, you know, a PhD <laughs> expert in the subject. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the spelling. Don't don't nail me on the on the pronunciation. Um, but the thing, so people thought that you might be they might be getting it from you know preparing those animals. There's blood, obviously, when you're uh, butchering them and stuff, um, and getting it from there. But they think they, but then they sort of realize that these animals were likely suffering from Ebola and not what's called. Uh, the reservoir, the reservoir host, right. or the yeah. or the natural host. Um, so yeah, the the reservoir host is the is the animal that the virus or disease you know naturally sort of lives in. They've sort of co-evolved to not hurt each other, so the virus can be there and the bats won't die. They won't show symptoms and stuff, but they'll be able to spread it. Um, so they've always suspected bats because of some anecdotal evidence, you know, of people being uh, in contact with bats or bat guano or bat caves. And then, uh, and then they, they later become sick. Uh, the, the book, The Hot Zone, which I, again, probably mentioned on this show a number that, of times. Is that a book or is that some sort of porn movie? <laughs> you know, you think at this point that I would like know... <laughs> You in my prep that when I say something that you that you're gonna make a joke like this, but I just keep just walking into it. It's, I just it's keep one of the reasons right why I love you, Flash. In that, you know, <laughs> so other, naive. Other people would go, well, they must spend hours in pre-production saying, "Well, I'll, I'll drop the word hot zone in, and then you can make a joke." And that's yeah, how this comedy yeah. works. But no, I I love the fact you blindly stumble into it. <laughs> just every time, every yeah. time. You never anyway, felt a disappointment, despite what that uh, poster said in school. Right? <laughs> uh, no, it's a, it's a book. It's a novel about uh, the outbreak that happened in the U.S. So it was like it was contained to a research facility in the U.S. I think only in the end, only eight people got it, and it was the Ebola Restin, the Restin strain, or that's what they named it after the that outbreak. Anyway. Um, but they, the, the book, the opening of that book is really nice. It's in this bat cave and describing these researchers kind of going in and he really just paints a really cool picture. Um, and it's terrifying. I think I was 11 when I read it and I was absolutely <laughs> terrified. Um, you know, well, other kids of a virus. You're reading about Ebola outbreaks. That just about sums <laughs> yeah. you up, Flash. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and then there was also the first case uh, of the large outbreak West African outbreak was believed to be, or believed, I think they nailed it down to uh, a young boy. Um, and he got it while well, he was said to be playing by this big tree uh, that the village kids always would play at, um, and where it's filled with bats. And they would catch the bats and eat them and, you know, have a little snack or whatever. So there was always kind of this link to bats. And then related. Um, viruses, hemorrhagic fevers like Marburg virus has also recently been discovered in, in bats in Sierra Leone. So it's all coming together that, yeah, it's the bats. We got them. It's the bats. So when we first covered Ebola many, many moons ago, I, 
I remember there was, we discussed one of the points of, you know, where did it come from? And I, I thought there was speculation then it came from bats. But was it was it purely yeah. the speculation or it was, oh, well, we know it's a reservoir and bats, but we don't know. Basically, as far as I could, like, I've, I did some digging around to see if this was the first, you know, the first time ever that it's yeah. been found in, in bats. Because they, like, the wording in the press releases it's the first time it's been found in a bat in Liberia. So I don't know if it's just in Liberia or what, but honestly, like, I mean, I've, I follow this stuff pretty closely and I've never, to me, it's always, my understanding of it was always that it's just like, we're pretty sure it's bats, but no one can find a bat that has it. So we, you know, there's no proof, right? Like everyone wants to say that it's bats, but there's no smoking gun. Um, And now it appears that there is a smoking gun. Um, because the bat had both the virus and antibodies to the virus, which suggests that it has, you know, evolved a response to it and that it lives with this virus, you know, all the time. So, um, so then that's an interesting point. Do we know if there's any other animals that created an immune response? Obviously, you know, since this bat is dead or alive, but if they're creating an immune response, then them create a successful immune response, so it stays there, maybe subclinically and doesn't cause the disease. But well, that's that's the idea is that bats. This is you know this because you don't they I, I, there was evidence to suggest that those other ones I mentioned, chimpanzees, gorillas, doikers, uh, were actually suffering from the disease and not not just you know subclinical living with it whereas again bats have always been suspected to be the reservoir where it's subclinical they don't have symptoms they don't die from it or at least not like like everyone else does at like a 50 percent clip you know um so yeah so i think this is i think this is the first the first as far as i know like the first smoking gun like i said the marburg virus is related to it and that was also recently found in a bat so it's all coming together that it's the bats. Um, so now what they're doing is they are analyzing the virus genome to see which strain it is, because there's six different strains of Ebola, with the Ebola Zaire strain being the worst. That was the cause of the you know, the West African outbreak, and yeah. it's also the culprit in the current outbreak in Congo. Um, so according to the eggheads in the lab, They've looked at about 20% of the genome, and the early bets are that it's very closely related to the Zaire strain. Oh. So, again, we got it. We got him. Got a big one. We found it. I, I love the fact, and I, I, I let it go, but I can't. I, I love the fact you call them the eggheads in the lab. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that what they are? Well, you were once one of those eggheads in a lab doing a PhD, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. 100%. 100%. And then I left. <laughs> you cracked out. Really. Yeah, I got I got sick and tired of getting teased. Oh, the yolks on no, you, my I, friend. S- I say it in jest. I say it in jest. Where would we be without the eggheads? Um, you just ignore my egg puns there. Oh, I heard it. You're just ignoring it. Yeah. Well, I hope the listeners as... take more attention to what we say <laughs> than you do. I'm sick of walking through all these traps, you know. I'm just gonna plow through them like I never eat, like I don't. Yeah, even don't notice. walk on eggshells, Flash. You just plow on through. Oh my god, <laughs> we're never this. This episode's already too long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As is my life right now. 
I know what you're thinking before you even think it. Yeah. Well, getting back to the serious stuff. Uh, yeah, no, it's an it's a it's an interesting finding. Um, mm. If it is yeah. if it is the Zaire strain, I think that's even better. I guess yeah. maybe that's well, the wrong yeah. word. Go but big or go home is, is yeah home right exactly. Um, because you know, obviously, you want to know um, who's the culprit behind spreading it, so that you can better prevent it, control it, blah blah blah, all that. If you know it's bats, stay away from bats, all that kind of thing. Um, but also, by looking at what what makes the bat immune response different than all the other things in which Ebola just kills you. Uh, so that'll be really interesting. I mean, we've already got some pretty good vaccines apparently on the go, but if you could understand, you know, a bit, it, it, it could only help is basically the point. Um, and the Liberian government is getting a lot of praise from the study authors. Um, and that was one of the, you know, Liberia was one of the countries where the big outbreak was. And they actually, I remember when we were talking about that one ages ago, um, whether it was here or um, where's my glasses, uh, they, they were also being, you know, everyone was talking about the Liberian government, you know, pushed to the limit, their healthcare system pushed to the limit, similar to the Congo right now, but making good, making good strides. And it seems like everybody always wants to make a note of that. So I thought I should make a note of that too, because, you know, they're in a very difficult situation um, with not a lot of resources and doing a heck of a job from what it sounds like. So this is a quote from the press release from the guy, the president of this EcoHealth Alliance, but he said the government of Liberia has not only has been not only a committed partner, but is working proactively to prevent further Ebola infections in the country. When we shared this discovery with them, they mobilized immediately to share these findings with their citizens. So for the government to now be able to offer specific guidance to protect people's health is critical. Past experience has shown that simply telling people not to eat bats is neither practical nor effective effective rather helping them live safely with bats is so that's kind of the next point that i wanted to make is you know it's good that they're you know getting the information out there a lot of times with ebola we talk about how there's so much fear because of the unknown yeah so by taking like a proactive step and being like okay we found that it's bats now you know don't just go out killing all the bats and you know people obviously eat bats in this part of the world so you can't just say stop doing that like I, that never works you know yeah. so they got to find ways to talk to people about okay well we know that it's there so it's a risk so when preparing bats do this or cook it here you know, i don't know what the specific things are going to be but i don't know that's uh that's a good sign and it's cool to see that you know the, again like we've talked about it again or before uh out of the, some of these tragedies comes you know, learning and better, you know, better preparedness for the next one. So it sounds yeah. like that's what's going on too. Uh, the great, the greater long fingered bats. So that's the bat that they found it in. The greater long fingered bat is also important to the ecosystem there because it eats a lot of crop pests and, and it's good because they don't tend to roost in homes. Uh, rather they live in forests and caves. So again, that's like, you know, can't just go killing the bats that's right. not going to work well and effectively um, for those sort of bats hopefully people aren't going to run in you know run, run into, into them as much yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah 
that's the point. Um, so again, the Liberian government is trying to engage the local communities about this finding to help reduce the risks of exposure and educate people about the positive impacts of the bat species on pest control and the environment. So they're kind of hoping that there's not just a wave of, oh my God, there's these bats, let's just kill them all, you know? Um, and I saw some comments in the press release, I didn't dig into it too much, but they appeared to have some past precedent where it was like, if you, a lot of times when you try and do that, it makes the problem worse. So I don't know if it's like you, you stress the population or you, you know, needle it down so that you have a small population where instead of, you know, one in a hundred being infected, you have like 10 out of 10 being infected. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what there is there, but so I just thought that was cool to add to that because it's, you know, like I said, it, there's some positive coming out of it and it's a, it's a big finding for Ebola. And if the people, if they can implement, you know, some safety sort of precautions or yeah. whatever about it, then maybe we see less of the, the outbreaks flaring up. I don't know. I mean, it's, that's a big, that's a long shot because there's so many other factors that go into that, such as, you know, like deforestation and all these other sort of... That's a good anthropo- point, actually, yeah. If, yeah. If deforestation is that pushing the bats to spread more widely. But, so. Well, and just so, be in contact with more, with yeah. humans, right? As we yeah, exactly. approach into the forest, yeah. right? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's so a you big say, thing. So you've also got the update as well? Yeah, so then from there, let's go to the current case. So this is the Congo outbreak. Um which is still ongoing. We're six months into this outbreak. So as of February 7th, we have a total of 789 cases, 735 of which are confirmed, 54 probable. And this includes 488 deaths, 267 survivors, and patients that are still under care. Um, And they've also investigated 199 suspect cases and I'm, so, I'm guessing that those were cleared but yeah so of 789 cases 735 confirmed as 488 deaths so again the uh, what's that over a little over 50 percent yeah yeah that's and that's what i was going to say and i my apologies flash i can't remember if, if we identified which strain yeah, I did say that, so maybe quit thinking of your puns and just pay attention. Sorry, did you say something? <laughs> it's just so... Uh, yeah, it's it's Zaire. It is Zaire. Zaire. Okay, so yeah, yeah. that's the more time for it being so But okay, yeah. but that's still still relatively contained then, because you know, at one point they were predicting thousands of cases. Right. So it sounds like they're, they're starting to get it under control, even if it's not fully under control. Well, I think I think that it's basically I don't know. It seems I don't know. So here's the here's the next exercise that I did. Uh, I was curious because it's six months into it um, that if we could look back at the first six months of the big outbreak uh, from 2013 2014 uh, and just see the monthly cases and see if there was any any difference like is it contained or is it sort of the other one had the same kind of progression in terms of numbers at this point was basically how the idea started yeah to see that 
because yeah, they've kind of talked about this, this Congo one, um, you know, we've mentioned the political, uh, and, you know, violent, uh, aspects of the region that have been hampering some of the efforts, but it seems to me like, yeah, like they still kind of amidst all of that trouble and all of those, um, barriers and obstacles, they've managed to keep it, you know, at least within the Congo, like it hasn't spread to other, other countries yet. So, so yeah, so I started by just looking at to see where they were at the same point at the same time. And then I just went back to the first six months. So if you look at the first six months, um, of combined monthly cases for the th three countries that were involved in the West African outbreak of March, 2014, uh, it started in March 2014. Um, so it was Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. Uh, so when they started recording in March, uh, it, monthly cases were 120. And then the next month, 114. And then it dropped to 75. And then 290. And then this is where the big jump comes, 723. And then by August of that year, it was at 1,000. 730 so there was a real acceleration there's a dip there was a dip and then an acceleration um and i think that that yeah well anyway let me do the next one so this is the current outbreak so it started in august monthly cases in august were 43 and then it went to 122 162 and then the next month it was again 162 and then went to 300 453, 608, and now we're at the 7, what did I say, 789, 735, yeah. So again, there's like, there was at least like a stall, you know, it stayed at 162, and then sort of bumped up from yeah. there. Um, so kind of similar, I mean, this is just vague, you know, very surface level, just comparing monthly case data. I'm sure there's, you know, it's not the direct comparison, but I thought it was interesting that there was like a lip, they both appear to have a lull and then an acceleration. And I, I wonder if that's due to incubation period and, you know, reporting of it, that kind of thing too, like actually finding the people that are sick. And right. if you get this, you know, more or less like maybe once it hits a critical mass, then it just, it, it, and you get people at the health centers, you know, right, congregating yeah. at the health centers and all these sort of factors. But that's always well, been an interesting thing to me is seeing, like plotting the data of an outbreak and seeing where these explosions sort of happen and, and, and understanding how that is. I mean, these are the factors that are so fascinating when you think of the people on the ground, like the disease hunters, you know, the, the Dustin Hoffmans of, of the, of the real of, world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And as you, I, I think, for me, the key phrase you used there was critical mass. Because I know when we talked about the, the outbreak originally, they were concerned because it was so close to a potentially to a highly populated area. So they were putting all these newer procedures in place of the vaccination ring, and you know, yeah. Isolation. Well, and that's the, that's that's an important to note too is that they in this outbreak they have I think they've now vaccinated like over ten thousand people. It might even right. be over twenty thousand people. So so. You would hope, you know, and from the numbers, it looks like that's potentially having an effect. So, but yeah, you know, as you said, if you if it if it moves into a more populous area and it gets that critical mass, then you know, yeah, it's well, it's not simple maths because I'm not going to do the maths, but 
it will then grow exponentially, won't it? You know, one person multiple is, is infecting multiple other people, and plus yeah. it grows on. So, yeah. Plus, there's the whole you know, it can what we found from the first one, it can remain in sperm and stuff for a while. So there's a there's a link there. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. I don't know. It was interesting. It'd be it'd be. I found a couple of websites where you can kind of look at some graphs and stuff, and I found it really cool because I guess I'm still an egghead. Well, I I didn't want to use the term on you, Flash, but you've uh, you've self-labeled yourself, right? Yeah, so. once an eggy, always an eggy. Um, yeah, I don't know. So that's that's the current situation. So we'll see how it, yeah, if it stays at this or not. Um, actually, you people should follow the Twitter. Well, I was going to at, say you've been tweeting two, quite a lot of the updates. Yeah, at too too bad for you. I've made a, a conscious, a more conscious effort to tweet out the updates. But I also am going to tweet out, there was a cool, a really cool piece in The Guardian. It's like a photo essay, which was just, you know, photos from, from the outbreak. Uh, and I always find those images like super crazy, super powerful. You see some of the crazy uh, spacesuit guys, you know, and just, just the people there. Because, I mean, at the end of it, that like, we find it super interesting and fascinating from the science aspect, from the epidemiology aspect. But, I mean, there's people there. That are that are dealing with this, and I mean that's that's you get the that's where you get the really powerful stories, the sad stories, and then the heroic stories as well. So if you can, people should follow some of that if if you find it at all interesting on the science level. I mean, there's another there's another aspect. So I'll tweet that out. Um, this photo essay that was that was in the Guardian it was really cool. I really I thought it was quite nice. And no, that's I, all I got on that. No, well, and I I noticed you'd been a little bit active on the old Twitter because every time I log into Twitter it's you know I'm paralleling it's retweeting it's like, Jesus can you not just get a real job or something <laughs> no it's it, it's been good because it, it's then made me go away and actually delve into the stories in the middle of the week so right I'm gonna I'm gonna take over the microphone for uh, a little bit uh, take it away bit. I am gonna take it away but I will give it back um at various points during these stories and then uh, at the end of the show. So uh, I've got a couple of stories for you. I'm going to start off um, with one um, diabetes-themed. Um, so uh, thank you to uh, one King listener who won't remain nameless because the last time she remained nameless, yeah. um, I got shit for it. I don't know if you did. Um, I did, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, she's your sister, so... Yeah, uh, so it doesn't matter to take... me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should be... You know, more used to taking the shit, but you should be taking more shit than me. But so, uh, a shout out to your sister uh, Tracy, who's off traveling and gallivanting around the world at the moment, yeah. um, for sending this story in. So, yeah, you sent this to me earlier. I had a, a quick look at it, and then actually, uh, well, because of the diabetes thing, ties in with another story that I'm going to do tonight. So, very quickly, the story that was sent in, I think we should um, tweet this out because uh, we were talking about it in pre-production. Um, I read a, a related story but it seems like this story is a bit further along so um, it was announced that the Centre for Beta Cell Therapy and Diabetes um, along with Viasite Incorporated, I think we've discussed before, mm-hmm. um, have initiated um, trials this week in um, type 1 diabetic patients using um, stem cells, basically to replace the lost beta cells so the beta cells are the ones in the pancreas that produce insulin that some reason the immune system um, decides to attack through an autoimmune process and 
hence why you get diabetes. So they've actually they've already launched the study in North America, in fact. So they've launched it now in Europe. Um, basically, the um, in preclinical models, the implants um, uh, PEC direct, also known as BCO2, because both of those just roll off the tongue. Uh, My eyes are starting to glaze over when I hear Yeah, I, I can sense that. So that's why I threw the VCO2 in there, but that didn't seem to wake up anymore. Um, the, the, basically, they're capable of forming functional beta cells. Um, so the beta cells can then restore normal blood glucose control function. Um, so this would potentially effectively be a functional cure for diabetes. Yeah, stem cells. Yeah. Um, Miracle so said, cure, a miracle cure, in fact. So, I, and I know we've talked about like the light sensitive cells, and we've talked about stem cells it's f- for many reasons, but we also talked about this in the past. So, uh, the implant was performed in um, University Hospital in Brussels um, with the product from this Viasite company. Um, goes on to talk about a lot about Grant, um, but the the question I had when I I read this and and I've never really seen answers in a lot of articles, is, you know, type 1 diabetes is caused by the autoimmune effect of the body. So you put beta Your cells Your own immune cells, yeah. Keep, yeah. You know, taking out your beta cells, yeah. Yeah. So what I never understood is, well, unless you modify that immune response... It's just going to happen again. It's just going to happen again. Um, so what this... Um, but wait, only... are these stem cells coming from the person themselves, or are they coming from an, another donor? Because wouldn't that matter too? Uh, that is a very good question, Flash. One of which, for once, I have the answer. <laughs> I thought I got you there. I could sense that little glint in your glazed-over <laughs> eye of, oh, I know how to get one <laughs> of this guy. Um the beta cell implants have been prepared from human donor pancreases. Okay, so not the patient themselves. No. Actually, no, I've you've got one up on me there, Flash. Uh, <laughs> that's No, that's the beta cell implant where they do take it from donor pancreases. Uh, yeah, the stem cells, yeah, okay. You... Because, but I, I don't know. I, I don't really know the answer either, to be quite honest. Uh, most stem cells come from there is some stem cells therapies where you get the stem cells from like someone else, like a donor of some kind or some yeah. kind of, you know, culture that they have in the lab. But a, a lot of them, I think, come from your own, like you need your own source. Like that's the best stem cell is the ones that, because there is immune issues. So there's got to be yeah, something so, yeah. going so on actually, in there. Yeah, so to, so to clarify, so yeah, what this article actually says is actually... Um, patients with type 1 disease that use um, exogenous insulin, so injecting insulin, um, while it manages the diabetes, it doesn't eliminate fully the risks of complications that you can get from diabetes, so eyesight problems or mm. you know, vascular disease later on in life. Um, so what it then says is actually beta cell implants that are taken from human donors can restore um, the endogenous insulin production and glucose control um, but there's a shortage of that because obviously there's just not enough donors out there. Mm. Um, so they're saying actually these stem cells would overcome this because they would potentially be on a large scale. So, yeah, that's something I need to check it because we talk about all these stem cell therapies. And obviously, I know, I think originally stem cells came from placenta and things like that. 
umbilical umbilical cords yeah um but have they have they found a way effectively to mass produce them without that that's what i think i know you can get them from the marrow too can't you you like you can like jam a big needle in your thigh and go like right deep into the bone marrow and get them yeah, there too. Yeah, bone marrow is uh, where you also get a lot of stem cells. Yeah, there's a few um, other places I think that they found that you can get them, but then it's a matter of like they have to remove them from your body, culture them into what they you know, and that's always the trick is getting them to do exactly what you want them to do, and then put them back into the body. Yeah, right. I don't know. If we had better memories, we would remember the last times that we've. I can't Talked. remember what I did you know, before we started recording that or anything else. So, but yeah, so as I said, so for me, whenever I hear about this this therapy, and I, obviously, you know, I've heard about it so much that I've not gone away and researched it, which is shame on me. Um, but if, if you put beta cells back in, the body's just going to attack them and destroy them. Right. Regardless but, of where you get them, if exactly. the point is... There is the, something, there's a your immune system in the body hates going, beta cells. Yeah. Don't so you, you put new ones in there, it's just going to go after them again. Yeah. So um, so actually, this company, Viasite, have two um, products that are undergoing clinical trials at the moment. So the first is basically... Um, oh, pan- sorry. Wait, 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 wait. This segment is brought to you by Viasite. <laughs> if you want to hear more about the two products they have... For your diabetes treatment, diabetes, sorry. Just wait right now. Brad's going to tell you all about it. Thank you, Viasite. Have <laughs> you been reading the article on Spotify and how they're going to get paid for podcasting? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, Viasite sent me this nice mug. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, it's not that nice and there's no Viasite on it. But anyway, so they basically they've got two candidates that are in, um, uh, in development at the moment. So the first actually is stem cells in a non-immunoprotective device. Um, and the reason that's there is um, basically for type 1 diabetics who have um, extreme hypoglycemia and awareness. So for those of you that aren't experienced with diabetes, you try to keep your blood glucose within a range. Um, and you've probably all heard the, the phrase of, oh, I'm having a hypo, if you know anyone that's diabetic. Basically what that means is your blood sugar is dropped below the minimum threshold so that's also the crash, isn't it? The diabetic crash. Right. Yeah. 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 So um, you and your big words. Yeah. Well, you know, I throw these out <laughs> there to, to make the listeners think I know what I'm on about, which obviously if they've listened to the rest of this segment and any other podcast, they know I don't. But so in the instance of my daughter, who's diabetic, if she uh, four is between four and 10 millimoles per liter is where we're trying to keep her blood glucose. And if she drops mm-hmm. below four millimoles per liter. Um, technically, she's hypo. Um, now, what what can happen is normally once you drop below a certain level, so four being the base level that you're trying to keep her in, if she drops below around about 3.7, 3.6, she'll start to feel dizzy, she'll get clammy hands, she'll start yeah. to feel unwell. The signs of showing a hypo, and she's aware of that, and she'll signal that, and then she can test herself and treat herself. Yeah. So Eat a candy diabetic, bar. Yeah. So diabetics all around the world, that's how they notice. Now, what can happen is if you have prolonged hypos um, or just some people in, in general just become unaware of that. So their blood sugar dips below the normal mm-hmm. level and then just continues dipping, but they're unaware of that. And the next, you know, that then has severe consequences because you're then on the verge of going into bi- diabetic comas and 
right. um, yeah. seizures and you know it's life-threatening effectively so if you lose that awareness it's called hypoglycemic awareness um, so their first product is aiming at trying to restore that so it, it gives some of the pancreatic function to monitor and manage blood glucose. A so these are, these are the ones that you said aren't in a little capsule that it protects they, they're them. They're in a little capsule that aren't protected from the immune system. So this is more of a short-term fix. Right. So you put them in there and they'll give you some pancreatic function, but you're still, you should get these symptoms and the immune system will still be able to have at these yeah. new So it, it kind of, you'd, you'd have to have normal, well, potentially you, you wouldn't have to supplement with extra insulin, but potentially it would be an adjunct to injecting yourself with insulin. You know, mm, 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 Potentially it might cure it for that brief period of time, but otherwise it would just be a short-term fix in these patients that potentially could have issues. Right. Um, so that effectively is just putting stem cells into the body. That's kind of what it's doing in mm. a capsule. The next wave along, and that's the one that's going to test today, is delivering those same pancreatic stem cells, in effect, but in an immunoprotective device. Like um, a little shield. Exactly. Exactly that. So it's like the Captain America with the shield. Um, so it restores all function, but at the same time blocks the um, immune system from doing what it's trying to do, which is ultimately destroy those. So, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, as I said, I didn't research into that story quite a lot, or we talked about it quite a lot, which is good. Um but yeah, I'm certainly going to want to read a little bit more because it's interesting that they're coming at it from two two approaches, and you know, kind of get why once you cure the diabetics out there, that's a revenue stream gone. So maybe the short term one, you know, takes over. But also, you know, it's an added complexity, isn't it, to restore the beta cell function and keep the immune system away from it. Yeah, you got to focus difficult. on both problems because because yeah. I mean, this is what we talked about with a lot of these things is like there's curing the disease, or there's just eliminating the symptoms yeah managing. you know like yeah. yeah managing the symptoms right and so you can get a way in which you can virtually manage the symptoms so perfectly that you never it's like you don't have the disease yet you still don't you know like this is with like fake robotic beta cells or you know like well, i think we've talked about some of these where it's like the technology they could get to to give you insulin and monitor your blood sugar would become so good and so small and like a wearable device or an injectable device or something that it's essentially a robotic pancreas um, that just replaces your 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 fleshy one and then uh, it's like you don't have the disease but in 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 fact you still do um, so yeah I don't know it's yeah two different two different approaches and I mean to try and rein in the immune system. And no easy task. Yeah, that's no easy one. So, but you know, one to, one to definitely watch. So I, you know, I will. I, I take the uh, the vow to to keep keep track on that purely for selfish reasons. If uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, no mm -hmm. other. So the other the other story related to diabetes that I was going to cover until you sent that one was um, injection pills. Sounds um, fun. Yeah, sounds really fun. So, um, in Science uh, Magazine this week or this month, uh, there was an article published um, from an author or a group of authors at the Women's Hospital in Boston. We're also um, based in MIT as well. Basically, um, we'll, as we always do, we'll send out the links to the stories so you can see the, the pictures. But it's basically, if you can imagine 
uh, a gelatin capsule, like you would see for like a normal cold medicine or something, basically with two, one, two, three, um, pea-shaped or pea-sized um, plastic devices in there that basically are pills that you eat. So you swallow the capsule, but contained in that is basically a little micro-injector. Hmm. Um, so they're pea-sized, they're kind of um, acorn-shaped, they contain, uh, and I quote, a stainless steel cap with a polyester nut. Hmm. Um, but they're shaped in such a way that once you swallow them, they actually rest in, in the bottom of the stomach. Um, and basically, they have a needle that's uh, effectively filled, in this case, with, with insulin. And what that does is the gelatin capsule dissolves and the needle then pricks the stomach lining and injects the insulin. Mm-hmm. So rather than having to inject it in your thigh or your arm or your stomach or buttocks uh, ejects it into the, the stomach lining um, and then the needle dissolves effectively the needle is made out of a material that uh, yeah by the effectively biodegradable um, the benefit of this is um, there's a lack of sharp pain receptors in the GI tract especially in the stomach huh. um, so effectively it's painless huh. um, so for those diabetics that don't like injections or whatever, then you would just dose yourself. Okay, I've had X amount to eat, but I'll take this amount of insulin. Or what if the delivery time is quicker? Because, I mean, you need, like, you, there's the digestion of the, the shell around the thing. You know, you got to get your, you got to dissolve the capsule and then these things come out. And I imagine once that they, once they inject in your stomach, then it's going to go directly to the blood. Like, it's probably quicker in that way but it's just the the digestion thing that has to happen first i wonder yeah. what's quicker yeah well and that's yeah because it would be harder to manage you would think if it's like okay i'm gonna eat i'm gonna eat my stuff and then i gotta take this pill and it's gonna kick in and like but then but then that's the the, the juggling right so actually kind of related to that so what they've shown is actually in pigs um they've shown the diabetic the, pigs wow no, actually, not diabetic. <laughs> in pigs, um, a similar amount of insulin can be released comparably between the capsule and injecting. Um, so from that point of view, there is a comparison. But as you said, the rate of release is the, the thing. But actually, with most diabetics, it varies quite a lot anyways when you would inject. So, you know, when my daughter was first diagnosed, we were told, oh, you have to inject 20 minutes before she eats a meal. Right. But actually, she responds to insulin really, really quickly. So, actually, so, if we inject it 20 minutes for a meal, by the time she, we get to the meal, she's already hyper. Yeah. So, it probably depends on everybody's a bit different. So, it would tend, depend on the person. So, yeah, it might be that some person has a slower digestion time and therefore you, you take it longer before. I guess potentially it's also more open to GI upsets. You know, if you have some sort of GI upset, you know, maybe you, know, maybe you would normally take one of these pills five minutes before, but on this certain day, it's going through like a dose of salts. You should take it thirty seconds before, <laughs> or maybe you should be taking it an hour before. Yeah, it seems um, like the the yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I get like for people that don't want to have to inject themselves all the time. Maybe that's, but it just seems like it'd be much more finicky to try and manage your. Yeah, to me, I. Th- but what do me, I know? I don't options. have diabetes. Well. Uh, to me, it gives options. You know, I, the number of diabetics that I've spoken to or, you know, speak, speak with on forums that say they actually get quite a, a stigma attached to them when they're in a restaurant or eating out in public 
when they go to inject themselves, people look at them as if they're some sort of leper or... And people even make comments, oh, you have to do that here. So, well, really? Otherwise I die. So, people do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, mean, you would you know, think that that's maybe, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go on a rant about that, but like... Well, nobody's dicks. ever said it in front of my daughter because I, I don't have a violent streak, but I would probably turn back. Um, but, you know, maybe for somebody that's more self-conscious or as we said, somebody that doesn't I get that, needles, I then, get that. Maybe, maybe that's another option. The drawback, and I mentioned to you this before, the reason I stumbled upon this story is the story that I was going to do tonight was on, it was actually going to be an environmental story, so nothing to do with diabetes. And it was going to be on the fact that this week they published um, research showing that microplastics have basically been found in almost every marine um, creature out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we're still trying to study what the long-term effects of this. But you know what that says to me? What does that say to you? Marine mammals, well, marine life, love eating plastic. Wow. They love it. Which, they can't get enough of it. Which, if they do, brilliant, because there's <laughs> you know a couple of million diabetics out there who, if they all switched off of injecting or pumps onto the, uh, the capsule system, would be shitting out plastic, I quote, stainless steel capped and polyester nuts all day. Right. Which would then be going into marine, marine mammals. So... Maybe kind of, maybe jellyfish love polyester nuts. Well, and there's only one way to find out. Maybe it's the next big seller if you're, you know, <laughs> marine fish. So, yeah, I kind of read this story about microplastics, and I was all set to that, and I read this about diabetes. I was like, oh, well, that's you know, where I'm going to go because I'm more passionate. And I was like, well, hold on. If we're having real issues about people washing their face with facial scrubs that's got microplastics in, that's bad enough. What about the fact that we could have people shitting out pea-sized shapes of plastic yeah, 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 polyester nuts. Yeah, you know, who who wants to be eating polyester nuts and staying still caps all their life? Yeah. You know, you solve one problem, start another, I guess. It's a never-ending well, cycle. Gives the eggheads in the lab something to fig, something to do. Well, exactly, yeah, get them on it, when, you know. <laughs> Give them something else to crack. Um, so, yeah, so that was the first, well, first two of my stories, actually. Uh, the next story I had, and I... I gave you the tagline to this in pre-production, but I didn't give you any more. So mm. um, you're going to get it as the listeners get it, which is that authentic, real experience. Fresh. Um, mosquitoes on a diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say um, what? There you go. So um, the Rockefeller University in New York City uh, have published in uh, the Cell Journal um, this week, They've done a set of experiments where they um, fed mosquitoes human diet pills. <laughs> like and really miniature ones. Well, that's, a, yeah, surely if you administer a whole pill, that's just going to squash them. Oh, but then the mosquitoes are going to be pooping out microplastics, even micro microplastics. <laughs> well, yeah, I pity the poor eggheads that's got to go through, you know. Mosquito shit and find that microplastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, no, so they basically they were feeding mosquitoes uh, human diet pills. And what they discovered is that effectively made the mosquito, and this is why it, they quote, and I quote from the article, it left the mosquito feeling full and bloated. Did it? Uh, really? Did it? Really? Um, but effectively, <laughs> All the mosquitoes did, were smoking their little mosquito cigarettes, just being like, ooh, i got to take a belt loop out of here. Oh, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm so bloated. Exactly. Effectively, what it did is they, they 
fed them these uh, drugs, and actually what it did is it put them off a bite. Um, so they um, they focused on Aedes aegypti, which is one of the big uh, mosquito species that spreads things like Zika, yellow fever, malaria. Um, yeah, it's and, a real bastard. Yeah, and in 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 mosquito in the mosquito world, it's the females that do all the feeding. Um, so they're the ones that, that spread uh, all the diseases. Basically, the, the females are um, attracted to humans, um, basically because human blood contains a protein that they need to produce their eggs. So it's yes. a, you know natural natural survival thing. But basically, once they once the mosquitoes are fed, the attraction to humans dives off at least for a few days because they've had a blood meal. Right. They don't need to produce any more eggs for a little while. So what they find is if you feed a mosquito on human blood after you know once it's fed. It's not interested in humans for It'll stop a few days afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And basically, that's what they recreated with this drug. So they used the saline solution that had uh, human diet drugs in, and basically, it suppressed the mosquito's appetite. What they found is these mosquitoes were just not attracted to humans anymore. Huh. Um, and the way, they, the way they did this was they held a uh, nylon stocking full of body odor belonging to one of the authors. Um, <laughs> and the mosquitoes weren't attracted to it after they'd fed them. Maybe that guy uh, just smells you, like crap. Well, you know, maybe use some deodorant. Maybe take them out for dinner and buy them flowers. They'd be more interesting. <laughs> but, anyway. um, but what they, they they then could do was then look at the, the neuropeptide receptors in the mosquito that were being activated or not activated by these drugs and effectively how you turn it on and off. So what these researchers have said is... you know, Wait, wait, wait. So they, they, they give them the thing, they give them the drug... And then they can look at, you know, their sort of, you said neural peptides. That's like, that would be an indication of, are they attracted to humans? Like, do they want a blood meal? Do they not? So they can actually see like, oh, this is the area where if you wanted to go even further, you could just like shut that off. Yeah. Yeah. So what they've said is basically this identifies the target for these drugs. So can they create more drugs for it? So what the... What the authors have said is basically this isn't, they don't see this as a replacement for insecticides, but obviously there's resistance to insecticides out there. Mm. Um, but it opens up an avenue, an avenue of research for, you know, maybe some type of repellents or things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, because at the moment, to get this type of thing to work, you basically have to have a way of that mosquito ingesting that, that product. So you probably have to have wild traps where the mosquitoes get trapped feed on it and then you know right. that, that receptor gets turned off and they're not interested anymore. But you could think like you know like you have everyone has those like uh those like garden candles that you burn that's supposed to keep bugs away. Right? Mosquitoes away. So if you had something like that that just like and you just made it super attractive for them and they all came around. Yeah. So then for like your campsite for like three days, you know, they wouldn't there wouldn't be any they'd all be full or whatever. You could see a pro. I could see a product like that. Yeah, and I, I and they go on to say obviously there's work on you know vaccines for malaria and 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 things and obviously repellents and new insecticides whatever. But this you know this potentially opens up another avenue of you know if you can switch this neuroreceptor on or off, you change the behaviour of the mosquito and you know mm-hmm. then by default you're decreasing the, the spread of um, the diseases. diseases but, yeah. Well, because, and I mean, that's an interesting, that's a, I, I think that's a cool avenue because, yeah, 
all the other ones seem to have a lot of problems at the moment. I was going to say problematic, but I kind of hate that word now. Uh, you hear it so much on Twitter. Oh, you're being problematic. Your behavior, your language is being problematic. Well, we're talking about fucking mosquitoes here, so I don't care. Um, but anyway, because, yeah, it's like the gene drive, that was one where they're like, if we insert this gene into mosquito populations, they'll reproduce and then they'll all get this gene, which, you know, sterilizes them or kills them or something, you know. So then you just wipe out mosquito populations. And then there's the whole argument, well, what does that do to the rest of the ecosystem? You know, who knows? Uh, you know, yeah. Does that? Or if that gene spreads from a mosquito that you don't want it to, to another insect, and then all of a sudden you have this like rogue gene that's somehow spread to insect to insect to insect along the line, you know, if it evolves and gets into other things and you've wiped out way more things than you meant to. So that's the whole eradication thing is always a problem. You have resistance to insecticides. So keeping their numbers down is difficult because you make them, you breed resistance to insecticides and then treating the diseases themselves. It's all about resistance to the drugs that we have. That's the, that's the main issue. So if you could just like kind of make them not feed as much, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that seems like a pretty good idea. Yeah. It's like I, may, I maybe you could, I've just, just got big bones. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd I just yeah that would I don't know that's interesting to me yeah even if it just like reduces the amount of spread like you could maybe get a handle on some you know maybe you're not eradicating malaria or dengue or something like that but you're just like slowing down the amount of people that get it and then the people that do get it you can better treat there's more resources for them to be treated I, it's, yeah it's cool well what, what I really liked at the end you know a lot of the times when you see new discoveries in any wake of science as people go oh well this is going to transform cancer care this is going to you know cure this and yeah, cure yeah. that what i really liked in this article they're saying no no we know this isn't the panacea for everything but this this opens up another avenue for us to look at for control right. control strategies while we're looking for the vaccine while we're looking at new insecticides and and the you know the impact as, as you've said of you know total eradication of mosquitoes and stuff um, and I, I thought that was quite a humble, humble mm -hmm. thing to be saying. Of yeah, you know, this isn't cure. It just opens up more things to look at. So, but with, um, yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's it. With so many of, especially with disease stuff. I mean, maybe it seems obvious to me because I was who once an egghead in the lab. But well, the, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> but there's like net like, there's rare, very rarely is there like a, a silver bullet. That, that kills everything, you know, like, or that yeah. takes care of everything. So having all these different little ways that you can just suppress the numbers, you know, keep the disease in a manageable place or something like that, just, you know, even with cancer, I mean, you got chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or radiation therapy, you know, there's all these, all these different ways that you got to kind of, you got to blast it with all yeah. these different things. So that multi, you know, it's that multimodal approach. Yeah, 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 yeah. AIDS, it's the same way. You know, they, with the drugs that they, if you get a cocktail of different drugs, that's always just like hammering at it. So, yeah, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, cool. Yeah. Mosquitoes. Yeah. Plus, if you stop them from feeding, even for a little bit, wouldn't that mean less mosquitoes being born in general? 
Because like for those three days, they're not producing eggs, they're but not they're feeding. Full. They're yeah. not producing eggs. So yeah, I guess you are. Yeah, you'd be declining your population. So yeah, check you out, big egghead brain on brain. <laughs> feeding the the Weight Watchers diet to the to the mosquitoes. Only that with some humans. Put them on a diet, and they also stop breeding. But, <laughs> that, that's another uh, Brad, I think sociological being, argument. We think you're being into. problematic there. I think that's a little problematic. Dig, dig me out of this hole, Flash, because I feel as if I'm, you know, going to anger the few listeners we have left. The few, the few we have left. The few we ever had. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, people, you know who you are. Thanks for listening. Um, okay, I got one more. I got one more. Um, so you remember the guy uh, that made those gene-edited babies in China? You remember that guy? Yeah. Yeah, well, it looks like he's going to get punished. He's going to get a slap on the wrist. Well, maybe something more, I don't know. Uh, The Chinese government, though, does say that he's going to be punished after an investigation turned up some ethics violations. Huh, who knew? Gene-editing humans. What was he doing? (laughs) Gene-editing humans is going to turn up some ethics violations. Who would have thought? But interestingly, though, you, the scientific community obviously already made their judgment of like, whoa, buddy, what are you like? What are you doing? And if you want to get more of a rundown on it, we have the in conversation piece that you can go back and listen to where we kind of break down a bit more what it was. But there was clearly some ethical issues uh, going on. But turns out it gets worse. So the dun, dun, dun. thank you. The state news agency for China, which is Tsinghua, I, I mean, pretty sure my Chinese pronunciation is impeccable. Um, they say that he intentionally. The investigators found that he intentionally dodged research oversight. Go figure. And used potentially unsafe techniques to edit human embryos. Not great. And they also say he forged ethical approvals to recruit the eight couples to do his research project, which resulted in two pregnancies. One of the mothers gave birth to the twins. That was the big story. And apparently another woman is right now carrying a gene-edited fetus. So... It's actually like criminality. Like he he broke the okay, rules. Okay, and I and I get that. And obviously, that's all wrong. But obviously, there are very good examples in history of scientists that have you know come up against ethical bars and ended up testing things on themselves. And yeah, brilliant work. So he's not he's not faked results. The results from before are still true. He basically he has broken the the law and some of the prime directives, if you will, of medical research of faking ethics approvals and things but but he's not faked any results or anything so the results are still good I, I mean as far as we know i mean again if you go back and listen to that sort of round table episode that i did with some of the people here in marburg we talked about there was some doubt about like there was some sketchiness of the results or at least the way that he was presenting them and they don't have the full picture yet but it was there was a lot of questions about okay well is this really what he's saying it is and is it going to be what he says it is? And it was all, the whole thing was just really sketchy, which is really, really disappointing that like for such a big thing, you know, that's like the first gene edited humans, it 
it's done by this guy who screwed it all up and did it in a terrible way and may not even have done a good job. I just, it's, I what a yeah, letdown, you know? Yeah. I knew, I'm looking forward to gene-edited humans, but this guy really took the wind out of the sails and probably set things back, you know? So, it'd be like the, the, you know, our, our, our boy trying to do the, the head transplant. We're all excited Where's for it. And then, and, and then yeah. in the end, he just, you know, it's just a dud. But anyway. Um, so, yeah, not only was this guy reckless, but he was actually criminal is what it, it, it seems. Uh, so I don't know what the punishment's going to be. I think there was reports like right after he made his big announcement or whatever that he was on house arrest and stuff like this. He kind of disappeared and then did an interview where he downplayed the, the reports that he was on house arrest. But there were some interesting articles that I found, like just the headlines from while I was sort of researching this. Um, and one that I want to get, that I want to read, and, and maybe we can cover it in, in, in different episodes, is, uh, well, first of all, MIT Technology Review is reporting that Stanford is also looking into their involvement. He had talked to some people about Stanford. The story that I heard was basically he was just saying, should I do this? And some of them were like, uh, no. And some of them were like, well, maybe, yeah. So they're looking at their involvement. But the one that was really stood out was a, a headline from NPR that, that basically they were saying that him doing this, this rogue scientist guy, um, is basically a product of modern China. So I don't, obviously the, the article is going to be about the research environment there, the sort of regulatory environment there a number of different things, which that was really interesting to me. Um, I don't want to, you know, I'm like, we're going to just sit here and shit on China because they're probably listening. You know? And there's more of them than there are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe I want to go there one day. I don't know. Um, but having said that, that there's, you know, this, this idea out there that it's the product of modern China. We now have another news story about muddy ethics from China. So listen to this, this. This could be like a some sort of like detective series. What's going on in China? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, maybe even broader. You know, some sort of detective that goes around to some cover and scientific fraud. And, yeah, and cover ups. Well, this is this is straight. Uh, the ethics are being questioned. So listen to this headline from a Gizmodo article: China's latest cloned monkey experiment is an ethical mess. So that's uh, so they're, pretty they're damning. Not sitting on the fence with that. No, that no, definitely not. So then, the article that I read about this story is from the magazine The Scientist. So their headline was a little more toned down: "Clones made of CRISPRed monkeys." But then the next Crisp, CRISPR, yeah, yeah, I, I like my monkeys deep fried. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, they've been CRISPRed. They've been CRISPRed. Yeah. They've been. You know, hit with the CRISPR. Al dente to the bite. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the byline then gets a little more, you know, a little more specific. I'll read that for you. It's just, so researchers edited macaque embryos to induce symptoms of sleep disorders and chose one animal to clone. All right. A bioethicist questions the study's appropriateness. So again... There's some questions. So let, let me, let's, let's, let's dive into what they did. Um, so basically, they used CRISPR 
to edit the embryos of five monkeys, the macaque monkey, in order to get this sleep disorder condition. So they're trying to get an animal model, I guess, for sleep disorder. Uh, so apparently you can knock out this one gene that controls the circadian rhythms, bro. And, uh, and that'll, you know, mess up their sleep. So then they looked at the one in which it worked the best. Like they edited these monkeys and said they looked which one worked the best, which one had the clean cut in the genome that we were looking for, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it had, and it had the worst sleep disorder symptoms, which the symptoms included loss of sleep, changes in blood hormones, uh, increases in anxiety and depression, and schizophrenia-like behavior. Lovely. Excellent. Oh, wow. That gene editing is going really well. I can't think why the ethics board have any issues <laughs> yeah, yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. Keep going fast. Exactly. Yeah, so they found the one that had the most of all of those, that was the most of all of that, uh, and they cloned that one. So, oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, seems a really efficient way to get a very controlled model system, right? you eliminate all the genetic variation between your subjects, basically, uh, and they have yeah. the most extreme case of the thing that you're looking at. So, I mean, when I was reading it, I was like, well, I see what you, I see what you did there. Yeah, no different to making a knockout mice for certain things. Well, yeah. exactly, and then, so that's what we can get to that. But So th this is basically exactly what the authors are saying. This is why they were doing it. Um, so in a statement that was released from one of the authors, Quian Sun, he's the director of the Non-Human Primate Research Facility at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of Neuroscience in Shanghai. Ooh, that was a mouthful. Um, he says, we believe that this approach of cloning gene-edited monkeys could be used to generate a variety of monkey models for gene-based diseases, including many brain diseases, as well as immune and metabolic disorders and cancer. Uh, again, makes sense. And then from the co-author, Mu Ming Pu, who directs the Institute, um, in a press release, they said, she said, she said, I don't know if that's a she or he. I always, I mean, I've, sorry, I just, I don't know. <laughs> you, you've opened that, that box. I know, up, now uh, I'm fucking being problematic again. Um, so that person, Pu, says, this line of research will help to reduce the amount of macaque monkeys currently used in biomedical research around the world. Uh, this is because the clones wouldn't have confounding genetic differences and preclinical drug trials may be able to get by with fewer animals. So they could reduce the amount of animals that they would need overall, which kind of makes sense to me. And I don't think there's a lot of new technology here you know like your CRISPR has been around now for a couple of years so you do that yeah. to the embryos and then the cloning technique is apparently the same thing that they did uh with the very first cloned animal dolly the sheep back in when was that like 1990s or something that was in the yeah, 90s was, wasn't it was that yeah was that uh like late 90s more, yeah was that more than that was in scotland wasn't it? yeah 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 which you think about like how crazy it is that they did that that long ago and we're still talking about cloned animals because i think the first time that they've cloned these monkeys, the macaques, was recently. Right. So basically they've just, again, like it's not a new, none of the experimental methods here is new, but they're just putting them together to make like a really selective 
animal model, I guess, which to me that, I don't know. I don't really see the problem with that, but this is what a bioethicist Caroline Newhouse of the Hastings center. The Hastings center is like a, a bioethics research center founded whatever years ago, 1960s in, uh, in New York. She says, it's very clear that these monkeys are seen as tools. Again, I'm just like, what? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what we do with animal research. Like, I don't see, you know. Um, but she says, because there was no hypothesis, like they did this without a hypothesis, they're claiming the monkey's suffering as a success. Um, and this, yeah, this seems odd to me because it's like, I don't think the actual procedure causes them pain. Like they're clones, so like that's not going to cause them pain, and that gene editing is not going to cause them pain. It's the fact that you've made these monkeys that are so genuinely schizophrenic monkeys yeah, fucked yeah, up. That yeah. yeah. Um, but again, then then it's just like it's. I mean, we have a lot of animal models that that make disease animals. You know, rats that grow tumors. You know, anxiety mice. You know, so I, I I'm wondering if like the issue is that it's a primate and not a rodent. I don't know. But um, she goes on, this new house, this bioethicist goes on to say that if she were evaluating this research as part of an ethics review, she would hesitate to approve it because of the, quote, incredible harm to the animals, end quote. Uh, She would need more information regarding their methods and what benefits the project would yield. Um, The Xinhua News Agency that I mentioned before um, reports that the program was supervised by the Institute's ethics panel and was in line with international ethics standards for animal research. So if they actually got the ethics approval in the first right, place, if they didn't just you know, things were a bit dodgy then. Yeah, if they didn't just forge the di- <laughs> forge the documents. Uh, you didn't expect, you know, monkeys sign there. Why, why am I signing there? Just sign there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign there, you'll get an extra, you know, great. <laughs> I didn't sign there. Yes, you did. Oh, maybe I've got, so I've got schizophrenia. I can't remember. Yeah, that. that's not my paw print. <laughs> tricking these monkeys. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I mean, because the technique itself, like, I, maybe this sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, it think makes that's sense. The, yeah, that's that for me is the the two arguments. So the the technique of cloning, obviously, there's some ethics around around that. But yeah, we seem to be okay with cloning things, though. I yeah, think the I think world cloning, has decided that clones yeah. are yeah, kind of all right. Uses, and that's fine. In terms of then the, the disease model, that's another thing. As you you know, as as you said, you know, we have we have knockout mice, we have, you know, yeah. mice that grow tumor, we have other animal models where they jack mice up on cocaine are, and let's see what happens, you know, like Right, exactly. Yeah. So we, we have models of that and obviously that's where ethics really comes in for me of well, you know does the benefit outweigh the the risk and the, the discomfort or the, the pain and that's that's the important part of animal research to me of okay well somebody has to there has to be some sort of checking balance here right but here's my other but these monkeys that have this disease you know they've you know they're missing this gene or whatever so they basically have a disease a sleeping disorder but which it sounds terrible, but it's also all they've ever known. You know, for all they know, that's that's what life is, right? And I know that maybe that does. Clearly, that doesn't make it all good. 
And I'm not necessarily no, even trying to. I'm devil's advocate here, but it is kind of just like no, that. And that that's, and that's, variant yeah, could that's happen fair. in the wild, right? Like that monkey could be born in the wild and either survive or not survive. But yeah, well, yeah, and that that monkey was cloned from a monkey with that natural. Well, no, they edited it. Oh, they did it. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Of if they don't know any differently, then is their baseline kind of reset? You know, obviously, if somebody edited our genes and suddenly we couldn't see if we got this, we know what normality was like before normality. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, my world's flipped upside down. Now we've got a comparison to that. Whereas, yeah. I see your point there. Interesting question of, you know, if you've reset that baseline to, well, this is the new normal. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, is there physical pain involved in that? I mean, obviously there's stress if it's anxiety and depression. Like, it's clearly not great. You know, I get that. I get that. Yeah. But you're not, it's, to me, that's a big difference. Big difference is maybe a stretch. It's a difference to actually like, you know, like cutting them open and causing pain in order to get your result that you need. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. And, but it just, it seemed, it seemed rather harsh words. And I didn't read the Gizmodo article. I'll post it uh, on the site, but I just read the, the article from the scientist and those quotes from the bioethicist. I read all the quotes from the story. So that's it. That's all they all they quoted, maybe Gizmodo. I think the Gizmodo's piece, they have a bit more about the why people were upset about the ethics. But if it's just because you've created like a really severe disease model, I mean, yeah, okay, that's a question to have. That's definitely yeah. a question to have. But is it an ethical mess, as the headline says? Like, is it, you know, maybe people are kind of just shitting on it too because it's China and they've had some, some questionable things come out. And of recent time, I don't know, but I don't know. It just I, to me, I was just it's I was I, well as I was reading it, I was like, I don't see the problem. But yeah, I don't know. Well, and, and maybe this one for you know, I know we have some egghead listeners, um, <laughs> so maybe they want to weigh what up, egghead, and, and uh, send us their views. I'm I'm aware we are time wise, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna yeah, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap go it up. with our go with our summary. Is that um, is that fair to do? So, uh, firstly, so number one, so you know he fought crime, and you know ultimately saved Gotham City. But Batman also caused the bowler. That's basically <laughs> how we started tonight. Imagine the bat light going out. Oh, he's come to save us. No, he's come to give us a coughs on you. Yeah. Ooh, I'm hungry. Oh, I think I have the polyester nut with a stainless steel cap. Ooh, please. Is it going to suppress um, your diet and make you not want to feed on blood? Well, that comes that comes next. But you know, if I was a fish in the sea and I saw a polyester nut and a stainless steel cap, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. going to satisfy my hunger. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the the future may mean that we no longer have fat bastards and mosquitoes anymore. So. <laughs> You know, the future could be you know, great and, you know, ultimately you get slimmer, healthier mosquitoes. Right. So, hey, don't fat uh, shame those mosquitoes. Well, you know, yes, I, I just have and I apologize um, for that. But only the women because the men are always slim because they're not eating. So right. how that works, I don't know. Um, as we said before, you know, especially with your last story, Flash, I think it would be good if some of the listeners could 
chime in with their views on that. So, you know, you can check out the um, the links that we post to all the stories and read a bit more in depth and go and do some do way more research than we do because you can tell we, we haven't <laughs> anywhere near enough. Um, I, I looked up all those bowling numbers, so. You did. No, and you did way more than me because you're an egghead. Uh, you can get in touch with the show uh, via Twitter at too bad for you. You can also use the same handle and um, hit us up on Instagram. If you want to get in touch with me, Britt Brad, then it's uh, at Bradley W. Hayes on the Twitter. Uh, Flash, if they want to hit you up. Uh, at B. Van Perdon. I'd love the way I ask that every week, and every week you have to pause and <laughs> Love that. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the slickness that our listeners have come to expect from this show. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Tabby Bruce didn't make an appearance. He's uh, gone somewhere else. So, podcast ma- mascot, you can hit him up on Instagram at Tabby Bruce as well. Flash, it's been a pleasure as always. As always, my friend. Uh, thank you to the listeners as well. Thanks for. Indeed. Um, there should be hopefully a little. Maybe try and squeeze a casting next week there could be a little flurry of a podcast activity yeah there could be um and then you know flash is going off on an international tour ladies and gents because due to the success of this show (laughs) i like to think um he's been headhunted to go and do some international work on educating the masses um, (laughs) educating more eggheads about podcasting well exactly so uh you know we will speak before that but i'm going to wish you luck with that flash and you know at the very least, we'll have a short spike in numbers as you plug our show relentlessly. I'll just, I'll just, course. it'll be mandatory for all the students to download it and subscribe yeah, to it. True. So we'll get a bump. Yeah, we'll th- get a bump. Otherwise, they fail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds good to me. Uh, listeners, as always, please get in contact. Um, we love hearing your comments. Tracy, thanks for your input. Thanks for the story. And, uh, and enjoy your, your travels. Yeah, thanks for the story. Uh, Flash. Until next time, my friend. Until next time, man. Take it easy. Take it easy. options here really well three options one you can scoop it out and pour it out which is going to be pain in the ass you can try and prod something up there and clear it but it's probably going to be pain in the ass as well he said what i have done in the past is blow back up the pipe just to clear the filter <laughs> so in the end yeah sure enough blowing back up the pipe yeah we did that like two or three times we also found you have to put a, a ladle down and if you stroke the filter inside that got so basically we called the stout blowjob stout because <laughs> got at least three blowjobs and then that's what made it work um as you were stroking the